So Father, we come to your word now to once again see this picture of what you've done for us. Father, we come in here today as sinful people. Help us to recognize once again that we do not stand justified before you on the basis of any merit of our own. We stand before you only because Jesus has made it possible for us to do so. Father, will you set our hearts and minds on that day when we will stand before you face to face and we will have no riches to hide behind. We will have no wealth. We will have no strength. We will have no status. We will have no list of religious works. Remind us that the only person who will stand on that day is the one who points to Jesus and says, he's why I'm here. Not of any good that we've done. Not of any work that we could accomplish. Only by the work of Jesus Christ. So Lord, as we open what will be for many of us a very familiar passage today, And as we do some familiar things, I ask that you would recaptivate our hearts once again with the good news. Recaptivate our hearts again with the good news. Capture our imagination with the gospel. And help us stand in wonder of the God who loves us so much that he would give us his only son. So Father, will you speak through me a word that will edify your church and glorify your name? Sanctify us in truth. Your word is truth. We ask all these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Everyone said, amen. Amen. You can go ahead and have a seat. And as you find your seat, <coughs> excuse me, seats this morning, I'm going to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 uh, will be in verses 17 through 34 together today. Um, this passage that we were in uh, for just a moment earlier. If you're our guest, my name is Taylor. I serve here at Cross as lead pastor and honored to have you here worshiping with us today. And what our church family has been doing for the last several weeks is we have been in a message series called Ecclesia, where we have been looking at what the church is uh, and more specifically what God has called his church to do. And the heartbeat behind this series is that we're, we're at this kind of cultural crossroads of the church in America where we have this really unhealthy tendency to take pretty much any sort of religious activity and just categorize it as church. Um, but a, word, a line that we've repeated over the last few weeks together over and over and over again is the reminder that words have meaning. And this word church has a meaning and you and I have not been given the freedom to redefine its meaning. So for the last few weeks, we've returned every single week to this simple definition. We saw in week one of this series from Acts 2, uh, the word church, it simply means assembly or gathering. But more specifically, as we look at the totality of the New Testament, the whole of the New Testament message, we see that the local church is an assembly of believers in Jesus Christ who profess him as Lord and are submitted to the authority of his word. They regularly gather under the leadership of qualified pastors and elders to receive the whole counsel of God's word and to observe the ordinances of baptism and communion. They stir one another up to love and good works, hold each other accountable to walk in holiness, and work together to advance the gospel to the ends of the earth. So we've returned to this definition week in, week out for the last five weeks. We're going to continue doing that for the next several weeks. And every week we 
we've paid uh, special attention to a unique piece of this definition. So in week one, we defined this word church, and we saw that the New Testament church was born through the labor of prayer. Acts 2, powerful story on the day of Pentecost, where the people are gathered together, they're praying together, the Holy Spirit of God falls upon them, they're filled with this power, Peter gets up and proclaims the gospel on the day of Pentecost, and on that day, 3,000 people are saved. Then for the next two weeks, we really saw uh, two, two weeks saw the same side of the, or two sides of the same coin, where we looked at the practices of both preaching and teaching within the body of Christ, how each of these serves a unique function. It's the preaching of the word of God that forms the people of God, and it's the teaching of the word of God that builds us up to maturity in Jesus Christ. Then last week, we looked at the first of the two ordinances, uh, which are baptism and communion. We saw last week that baptism is how we publicly profess our faith in Jesus Christ. It's the first step of obedience that we take as new believers in Jesus. And this morning, we're going to look at the second ordinance. Ordinances, uh, second ordinance, which is communion uh, or the Lord's Supper. Um, several years ago, back 2016, when we were working together behind the scenes as a launch team preparing uh, to launch Cross Community in early 2017, we would gather together, typically our team, on Saturday mornings, and uh, we were just studying, for the most part, in the year 2016, the book of Acts. And, and we just wanted as best as possible to see this church take shape the same way those who were the earliest followers of Jesus were following in his footsteps and obedience of what he called them to do. And so one of these Saturday mornings in particular, we were talking about the shape of our worship gatherings. Now, the heartbeat of the name Cross Community Church uh, comes from the book of Galatians, where Paul says in Galatians 6, far be it from me to boast in anything except the cross of Jesus Christ and him crucified, by which the world has been crucified to me and I've been crucified to the world. And so we said as a congregation, we want to boast in the cross. We want the message above every other message to be the message of the cross, the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so uh, we said when we gather together for worship, we want everything that we do to point to that message. So we talked a lot about the preaching of the word and, and the shape that that was going to take in our worship gatherings. And we talked about the types of songs that we wanted to sing, how we wanted them to, to point us to Christ and what he's done for us. We, we talked about prayer and how uh, that was going to be incorporated into when we gathered together. And then, uh, of course, as we talked about the shape of worship gatherings, we came to the subject of communion. Now, you know, interestingly enough, of the, the 30 or so people who were a part of this group early on, almost none of us had come from a background where you take communion on a weekly basis as a church. Most of us came from a background where that was something we did, you know, every six weeks, maybe every six months. Like, I remember one person saying, hey, the church I grew up, we only did it once a year on Christmas Eve. And, and so for, for most of us, it was uh, some sort of regular infrequency, you know, kind of combination. And, uh, but almost none of us had come from a background where it was something we did every single week. There were only a few people in the room. But as we studied Scripture and as we, we laid before the Lord this desire to say we want everything we do to point to the cross, we landed on the decision to take communion weekly, to come to the table on a weekly basis. Church, here, here's what I've come to learn over the last several years. I love to, to preach the gospel. It's what God has called me to do. It's what he's equipped me to do. It's, it's, it's the greatest privilege of my life to share the word with this congregation every single week. But I, I've just come to realize sometimes sermons fall short. 
Like, I'm a sinful person. I can make mistakes, and, and I maybe had a bad breakfast one day. Who knows? But like, for a number of reasons, sermons can fall short when we gather together for worship. Sometimes songs don't quite perfectly get the message across. And so here's what I love about coming to the table every single week is, is man, even if I laid an egg that day, just mailed it in, and, and the songs didn't get quite across, what's going to happen at the end of the day is we're going to land on the finished work of Jesus, one way or another, despite our worst efforts at times, we're going to land on the message of the gospel in the finished work of Christ. We come to the table, we'll see today in 1 Corinthians 2, proclaim the death of Christ, and we come to remember what it is that he's done for us. Bobby Jameson has a really helpful book on, uh, on communion that's uh, called Understanding the Lord's Supper, short read, and it gives us a good definition here. He says, the Lord's Supper is a church's act of communing with Christ and each other and of commemorating Christ's death by partaking of bread and wine and a believer's act of receiving Christ's benefits and renewing his or her commitment to Christ and his people, thereby making the church one body and marking it off from the world. So 1 Corinthians 11, what we're going to see today about the Lord's Supper is that the Lord's Supper unites the body of Christ, it proclaims the death of Christ, and it draws us into a posture of confession and repentance that leads us both to action and to genuine change. We come to the table to remember Jesus, and we come to the table to proclaim his death. So 1 Corinthians chapter 11, let's read together uh, first verses 17 through 22. Apostle Paul writes here, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you. We're going to give some context to that in a moment. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. Y'all, people were getting wasted at the Lord's Supper, the church in Corinth. This is a problem. And, and Paul's addressing this. I mean, this is a mess of a situation. You know, many times, like, we kind of rose-colored glasses, look back, we're like, man, I wish I could have been a part of the early church. Guys, the early church was a mess. Most of us wouldn't have been able to stand it. I mean, they're just all over the map. And so Paul is writing this as a rebuke to them. Verse 22, he says, What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So three reasons why we come to the table that we see from 1 Corinthians chapter 17. First reason, we come to the table to eliminate division within the body. We come to the table to eliminate division within the body. The book of 1 Corinthians addresses several major doctrinal and relational issues. Again, I said this just a second ago, but it is difficult to overstate in this moment just how much of a mess the church at Corinth was. Again, I know that we like to fantasize about like the early church and that's what we got to get back to. Guys, it was a disaster, unmitigated disaster in Corinth. They needed two letters, right? I mean, Paul said, like, one's, one's not enough. And, and, and so he's, he's writing a stiff word of rebuke and correction because th there's a number of doctrinal issues just over and over again that he's got to correct within the body. So uh, chapter 11, if you go back and look at the beginning, uh, verse 2 talks about how Paul is actually commending them for how they were observing the traditions that he left them to. 
But by the time we get to verse 17, he's rebuking them because even though they remembered the tradition of coming to the table, they were coming to the table in a way that was dishonoring to the Lord. Now, in the first century context, uh, it's a little bit different than how we'll do at the close of our worship service here today. In, In the first century context, typically the believers took communion together in the context of a full meal. So um, those of you who were here with us uh, for family meeting two Sunday nights ago, you know, what do we do that night? We came in together, we, uh, we had a meal uh, together, we had the game on, just enjoyed fellowship together, and then uh, we had a, a meeting together congregationally, and then we closed that night by taking the Lord's Supper. That's a, mu- that's a lot closer to what the earliest followers of Jesus did. They, they would share an entire meal together, and in the context of that meal, they would then celebrate the Lord's Supper. And that was all part of their worship gathering. Here's the good news for us, guys, is, is that means like all of this, like we come to church, go to lunch together, and have Super Bowl parties, that's biblical, y'all. Like, we should be all about these things. People spent their whole day together. They were in each other's homes. They were in each other's lives. It wasn't just the singing and a sermon and going home. It was koinonia. It's the word that Scripture uses, fellowship. Heavily invested in each other's lives. And so that's how they would celebrate community. But here was the problem in Corinth, is that the Lord's table became a place of class distinctions, Here's what was unfolding. You had a very wealthy social elite group. There weren't many of them in Corinth who, when they came for these worship gatherings, they would bring these massive meals with them. I mean, multi-course meals. They would eat so much, indulge themselves so much to the point that some of them were getting drunk. All the while, they are gathered with other brothers and sisters in Christ who were so poor they'd hardly eat anything all week. And so they came together, and instead of using that wealth to serve the body and to make sure their brothers and sisters weren't going about need, the Lord's Supper became about those who had enough to partake and those who did not. And this is a problem. You know, so, so just, I mean, imagine this for just a moment. Super Bowl Sunday, let's say you got this big elaborate party planned, right? Like you, you've got the truck loaded up with the grill, and you've got a, you know, a trailer. You're going to have a big tailgate party. You pull that up next to a homeless shelter, and you don't share any of it with anybody that's inside. That's kind of the situation here in Corinth, is is they're flaunting excessively all of their abundance above their brothers and sisters in Christ. They they got brothers and sisters in the Lord who hadn't eaten all week, and then you got this small group of people. They're three sheets to the wind by the elder scripture reading. It it was a terrible picture. And, And so Paul starts this out with a word of rebuke about the way they were coming to the table and how it displeased the heart of God. You know, I'd, I'd like to say that these divisions at the table stopped at the church in Corinth, but un- unfortunately, as we study church history, we see that that was not the case. All through the centuries, the, the table in, in many contexts became a place of class distinction, of racial distinction, of ethnic distinction. Frederick Douglass was uh, the famous abolitionist, African-American abolitionist, a powerful voice uh, in the middle of the 19th century speaking against the work of slavery, strong follower of Jesus Christ, prophetic voice in his generation. And he shared a story uh, in a speech titled one day, uh, in, uh, this is dated November 4th, 1841, The Church and Prejudice. And he talked about multiple stories. I'm going to share one here in just a moment about uh, how the table had become a dividing line between black and white. And so he shares this very sad story. He says, at New Bedford, where I live, there was a great revival of religion not long ago. Many were converted and received, as they said, into the kingdom of heaven. But it seems the kingdom of heaven is like a net. At least so it was according to the practice of these pious Christians. And when the net was drawn ashore, they had to set down and cull out the fish. Well, it happened now that some of the fish had rather black scales. So these were sorted out and packed by themselves. 
But among those who experienced religion at this time was a colored girl. She was baptized in the same water as the rest. So she thought she might sit at the Lord's table and partake of the same sacramental elements with the others. The deacon handed round the cup, and when he came to the black girl, he could not pass her, for there was the minister looking right at him. And as he was a kind of abolitionist, the deacon was rather afraid of giving him offense. So he handed the girl the cup, and she tasted. Now it so happened that next to her sat a young lady who had been converted at the same time, baptized in the same water, and put her trust in the same blessed Savior. Yet when the cup containing the precious blood, which had been shed for all, came to her, she rose in disdain. And walked out of the church. Such was the religion she had experienced. Paul addresses this in verses 18 and 19. He he says, you know, I've heard that there are divisions among you. And what Paul says next, it's a little bit tongue-in-cheek sarcasm. And and Paul basically says, and you know what? I believe it. He said, "But, but here's the deal, guys. A little bit of division is actually good. He said, because through your actions, you know what some of you are doing right now? You're proving who's truly in Christ and who's a fraud. Like, not all division within the church historically is bad. Some division is good. Some people, through their actions, they make the job easy of proving who is truly in Christ and who's just playing the game. And Paul says, this is what was being magnified at the table. He said, your actions betray you. The the table is to be a place of unity. So, So, man, it is just at the height of sin to come to the table which proclaims the unity of the body of Christ and points us to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It is the worst of sin, the greatest of offenses to come to the table claiming this gospel for yourself and then denying it to others. It's functional heresy. It's functional apostasy. It is a denial, not just of sound doctrine. It is false practice in the eyes of God. Church, the table is the place where all divisions are broken down because all divisions have been broken down by the work of the cross. When we look at the mess that our world's in right now, what's the solution? The solution is Jesus. The solution is the gospel. The solution is Christians who are resolved through repentance and confession and reconciliation to not see these things happen again. That's the solution. This is what what Paul says in Galatians chapter 3 about the work of the cross. The work of the cross, it has broken down every barrier of division that's been set up by sin. It has broken down every barrier of gender. Every barrier of age, every barrier of ethnicity, every barrier of socioeconomic class, all of it has been obliterated by the work of the cross. He says in Galatians 3, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male or female. For you are all, what's that say? One. You are all one in Christ. One in Christ Jesus, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. He asked the question this morning, why do we come to the table? Church, we come to the table because it reminds us that the ground at the foot of the cross is level. There's no more division of age. There is no more division of ethnicity. There's no more division of socioeconomic class. You and I, we come to the table for the same foundational reason, which is that we are broken sinners who are desperately in need of a Savior, and Jesus Christ is that Savior. And if he's not the Savior of all, then he's the Savior of none. And so we come to the table to eliminate division within the body, to to ensure that the walls that were broken down by the gospel stay broken down. The ground at the foot of the cross is level. 
Paul goes on, verses 23 through 26. This is the section that we tend to read whenever we're coming to the table together. This is what Brandon read for us earlier. He says, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. Now, let me pause here for just a second because I don't want us to miss what he's saying here. You know, if you leave the worship gathering here today, maybe you, you hear something today that was new for you, right? So you might, might say, like, hey, I received this from, from Taylor. Like, that this is something he was preaching about today. But what you would discover in a conversation with me is, like, I, I've received that from a couple dozen other people. Like, there's been lots of influences in my life, pastorally, people have discipled me, books that I've read that have, that have helped shape my convictions, and they've been discipled by dozens of others, and this just goes on, just ad infinitum, to 2,000 years, all the way back to Paul. And so, so here's Paul, just think about how powerful this is, first generation follower of Christ. Paul said, like, he didn't receive this from a pastor, he didn't receive this from a book, he didn't receive this from a blog or a conference, he says, I got this from Jesus, I receive this. So, so what Paul is now delivering to the church, like this is the word of Jesus. Can you imagine having been one of those Christians? First or second generation follower of Christ? Who'd you hear that from? Jesus? Trump card. You win every argument, right? He says, what I received from the Lord, I also delivered to you. And, and here it is. This is our reminder. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. For you. I want you to repeat these two words after me. For me. Because it's for you. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we come to the table to eliminate division within the body. Second, we come to the table to commemorate the finished work of Christ. But we come to, to ensure that the walls of division set up by sin remain broken down, to be reminded that they already have been broken down. That's what's been secured for us in Jesus. But we also come to remember what Jesus has done for us and to proclaim his death until he returns. So after rebuking them, verses 17 to 22, Paul now issues the corrective in verses 23 through 26. Here's what you've been doing. Here's what you need to be doing. Let me remind you of this. And, and we see this all through the New Testament, especially in a lot of Paul's writings. Like We just have this terrible propensity as sinful human beings to forget things, both in our doctrine and our practice. Like We so quickly and easily drift off course. That's really why we're doing this message series. It's to, to make sure that we're remaining aligned, not with our opinions, not with our preferences, but with what God has actually revealed in his word. If you're not familiar, Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper the night he sat down at the table to remember the Passover meal with his disciples. If you don't know what Passover was, it was a, a centuries-held Jewish feast that commemorated uh, the night of the Passover that's chronicled in the book of Exodus. While God's people were in bondage and slavery, uh, they were under the oppression and the rule of Pharaoh, and so the Lord sent ten plagues on the nation of Egypt. The tenth and final plague was going to be the death of the firstborn son, and so the Lord instructed them to prepare a meal and then to take the blood of a lamb and put, and put it on the door frames of their home, and he promised that the homes that were covered by the blood of the lamb, the angel of death would pass over, and so that, that's where that word comes from. And so what Jesus is doing the night of the Last Supper is, is he is fulfilling the Passover, he is declaring by his presence and by his death, I am the final sacrificial lamb. I am the perfect lamb. This is a new covenant that's being ushered in. They needed a new one because they kept breaking the old one. 
The old one written on stone, given to, to them to obey, but Israel just time and time again. Right? The Old Testament's like Groundhog Day, right? I mean, it's just like, wow, it's September. Again, here we are, you know, like just, just going through all of this. It's a Groundhog Day. And so he gives them a new covenant, a better covenant, one that he writes on their hearts, one, one that's going to forgive us of all sin, past, present, and future. He, he institutes this the night of the Passover so that all who call on the name of Jesus, we are, in a sense, covered by his blood, and death one day is going to pass us over. It has no claim on those who belong to Christ. That's what's being commemorated at the Lord's Supper. Historically, there's been a, a few different views within the church about the nature of the Lord's Supper. Those who come from uh, more of a Catholic background probably hold uh, to what is known as transubstantiation. It's the belief that the bread and wine uh, literally transform into the body and blood of Christ after it's been consecrated by the priest, and partaking of the Lord's Supper is a justifying work and a means of grace. Uh, it may come from more of a Lutheran background that might teach along the lines of consubstantiation. Uh, this essentially teaches the bread and wine continue to be bread and wine, but uh, the body and blood of Christ come alongside the elements of communion. The language that's often used is in, with, and under. Uh, we as a church hold to a third view, the, the symbolic view of this. We believe that the bread and wine symbolically represent the literal body and blood of Christ that was shed. And so we as followers of Christ, we, we don't have to seek out his presence through other means. We know that as believers in Jesus Christ, that the power of the Holy Spirit dwells with us always. J Jesus promised us this. Like, we, like the Holy Spirit doesn't stay in the building and we come back and find him again on Sunday. We, we track him with that? Like, like, he goes with us. I am with you always to the ends of the age. There's a funny debate that happened on this subject. 1529, uh, Martin Luther and Ulrich Zwingli were arguing over the nature of communion. Luther was, you know, the, the, fame, the face of the, the Protestant Reformation and had kind of a bombastic and, and audacious personality, which is why he was part, part, partly why he was so effective in leading the Reformation. That brother could throw some shade at some folks. You should read uh, some of the stuff Luther's written. And so he and Zwingli, one day, they're debating the nature of communion. Luther held to more of a literal presence view. He believed that the body, or that the, the bread and the wine literally became the body and blood of Christ. And so as they're arguing back and forth, uh, he infamously takes a piece of chalk in the table where they're sitting. He writes, in capital letters to Zwingli, this is my body. And, and so Zwingli's rebuttal to this, though, was from John chapter 6. He says, listen, when, when Jesus says, eat my flesh and drink my blood, he wasn't inviting us to literally eat his flesh and drink his blood. He was inviting us to, to feast on his presence within and to be fed ultimately by his word. And so th that's the view that we take as a church, more of a symbolic view. Now, interestingly enough, those who take more of a view of transubstantiation, consubstantiation, they'll make the argument uh, that the bread, this is my body, the bread becomes physically the body of Jesus, but almost no one makes the argument that the cup is the literal covenant. So it's almost like it changed the rules of interpretation mid-sentence just to, to fit uh, a theology there. We take a symbolic view. That this is reminding us, it's a symbolic, view, uh, symbolic approach that reminds us of a literal reality. Breaking that bread, it reminds us that Jesus' body was literally broken for us. Drinking that cup reminds us that Jesus' blood was literally shed for us. This is something that actually happened. And, and, and so it's, it's easy just to kind of drift into the monotony of this, but here's why we believe the preaching of the gospel pairs so well with coming to the table. You can think of the preaching of the word as the voice of the gospel, but communion gives us a vision of the gospel. It's like the sermon illustration that never gets old. It's, it's the story that we can hear week in and week out that's visually represented for us the good news of what we believe about Jesus Christ. 
So it goes back to the question, so why do this on a weekly basis? Well, again, when that team was gathered in early 2016, we're studying the book of Acts together, and this is what Acts 2.42 says. There were four primary devotions of the early church. It says they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, so the preaching of the word. Uh, They were devoted to fellowship, so again, it was that shared life. It was Super Bowl Sunday always in the early church, amen? Like, it wasn't just Sunday morning, it was Sunday night, it was in each other's homes, it was just this ongoing shared life. And so they're devoted to fellowship. They were devoted to the breaking of bread. So that was a full meal that would have involved partaking of the elements of the Lord's Supper, and they were devoted to prayer. And here's what's really interesting. Whenever we talk about the frequency of the formative disciplines, almost no one makes the case that we should do any of the other things less. Like, so you never hear anybody making the case that we should preach the gospel less. We saw this three weeks ago from 2 Timothy chapter 4. Preach the word, and we do it both in season and how often? Out of season. Translation, always. Like there's no off season for the gospel. So like nobody's making the case that we should preach the gospel less often. Nobody's making the case that we should pray less often. Anybody in this room have that problem, like you're praying too much? Is, is anybody struggling with too much prayer? I'd love to meet you. I haven't figured that out yet. Like no, no. First Thessalonians 5 says we should pray without what? Without ceasing. So we pray more. Is anybody making the case that we fellowship less? Nope. Hebrews chapter 10, we saw that three weeks ago. Let's not forsake the assembly of ourselves together, but all the more as we see the day of the Lord drawing near. So not with decreasing frequency, actually with increasing frequency. So the biblical case for every other discipline that's there in Acts 2 is increasing frequency, ongoing frequency. Now, I don't think this means that we now go to the extreme that every time you sit down and have a meal with someone that we take the Lord's Supper together. Because again, context still matters. Paul is writing here to a specific local church in Corinth, and communion in the New Testament, it's the formative practice of a congregation together. So again, I don't think it's necessarily wrong, like you want to do that as a small group or at the dinner table as you take Thanksgiving, but as we see it in the New Testament, uh, this is for the assembled gathering of the church, and we've spent five weeks now defining church. So I think we still need to be careful. I'm not necessarily saying we we start doing this every single day, multiple times a day. But it seems to be that the normal, consistent rhythm and practice of the early church was to do this pretty much any time they gathered together. And so, you know, the pushback when it comes to weekly communion always ends up being, well, if we do this, won't it lose its significance? Won't it lose its meaning? This is from Ray Van Nest. He had a really great article of the Gospel Coalition several years ago where he addresses uh, this, this pushback. He says, a typical argument against weekly communion is, if we do this so often, it will become less meaningful. At first, this has the appearance of wisdom. But with just a little pondering, the illusion fades. Do we apply this reasoning to other means of grace? Are we worried about praying too frequently, reading the Bible too much? Shall we be safe and make biblical free- preaching less frequent? These practices become rote, this is important, these practices become rote not because of frequency, but because of lazy minds and hearts and the lack of robust biblical proclamation alongside the ordinance. Church, here is what we have got to keep in mind. Like, Can we fall, any one of us, you, me, any one of us, can we fall into the trap of religious monotony? Is that easy to do? It's really easy to do. I mean, man, I think it's just something we have to be so on guard against. This is something that the Pharisees kept missing in the New Testament. They were checking all the boxes, but it wasn't, wasn't part of their heart. 
right? just, just kind of following the list, going through the motions, grinding it out for Jesus. Like, that, like that's not what he's called us to. So we can, any one of us, easily drift into this monotonous routine of checking the box, going through the motions. But I want to challenge us on something this morning. When it comes to the Lord's table, something that we do every single week, if we find ourselves saying, why do I really need to do this again? I think the better question we need to be asking ourselves is, why does the gospel no longer amaze me? Why have I grown cold to this? Why has this become dull? Why have I become immune to the good news? Why am I no longer moved by Jesus? That's the better question that we need to ask. So again, you know, as a church, we, we don't hold a literal presence view. We, we, don't, we don't hold to transubstantiation or consubstantiation. But, but I, I would argue this this morning. Again, we know as believers that God's spirit is with us always, that he never leaves us or forsakes us. And so when we come to the table, it's not that we come to the table to seek his presence, but I think coming to the table significantly heightens our awareness of his presence. It gives us something physical. It gives us something tangible that we can get our, our hands on that, that visibly reminds us of that body that really was broken for us, of that blood that really was shed for us, of the message that you and I have been called to proclaim until Jesus returns. And so again, biblically, like I can't find an argument for why we would want to do that less. Yet Paul lays it out for us. He says, for as often as you drink it, it's in remembrance of him. He doesn't say how often. He just says, as often as you drink it. Verse 26, for as often as you eat and drink, you proclaim the Lord's death. doesn't say how often. He just says, as often. So here's the question I think we should ask. Frequency of communion. Well, how often do you want to remember Jesus? And how often do you want to proclaim his death? I can't think of a biblical reason to do that less. Like, I can't think of a biblical reason for us to not continually center on the message of the good news. Man, I love that table. I'm just going to be transparent with you because I feel like so many weeks it bails me out. Like, I get to the end of a sermon, I'm already feeling, I'm like, that wasn't quite as clear as I would have liked it to me. Boom, Lord's table. Gospel, bailed out, got me that day. It's the safety net. This ensures every single week we're going to land on the finished work of Christ. And I can't think of a good reason to not proclaim the finished work of Christ. Amen. So we come together to the table. So Paul then closes out this passage with a word of warning. They've been guilty of false practice of division within the body of Christ. And so he issues a stern warning here in verses 27 through 34. He says, whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For if anyone, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. I'm gonna pause here for just a second because we're gonna read a verse, verse 30 here, that's gonna have you asking, does that verse mean what I think it means? And I'm just gonna go ahead and lay it out for us. It means exactly what we think it means. It is a grievous thing in the eyes of God that we would come to the table and claim the gospel for ourselves and then deny it to others. And so this is what Paul says in verse 30. He says, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home 
so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. So we come to the table to eliminate division within the body. Second, we come to the table to commemorate the finished work of Christ. Third, we see this morning that we come to the table to evaluate the condition of our hearts. Verses 27 to 34, that's, that's sobering, right? I mean, that's, that's heavy to, to read those words. So when Paul warns against partaking of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, remember the context in Corinth is that they had been causing division within the table. And, and he says, like, this is so grievous in the eyes of God that to do this is actually to invite the Lord's judgment upon yourself. Now, now listen, understand this morning, like, not all illness and sickness is the result of sins that we have committed. But Paul reminds us here in 1 Corinthians 11 that sometimes it is because of sins we've committed. That God, in his mercy, he will see us committing heinous, egregious sins in his eyes. It is actually more loving for him to take us off of the planet than allow us to walk off the cliff of condemnation because that's where we were headed. That it's actually an act of mercy for God to discipline us or, or allow uh, the end of our life even to come because we are walking in such great opposition to him. It would be better for him to do that than to otherwise we would walk to our own, our own condemnation. And so, church, like, like we, we've got to recognize this. Like, it, it is a grievous thing in the eyes of God to come to this table, to come to the table and be all about his grace for you and his mercy for you and his salvation for you and yet hold a grudge in your heart against a brother or sister, to deny them grace and mercy, to cause and to foster and to promote division within the body, to implicitly or explicitly elevate yourself above others, because of how much money you have or because of the color of their skin or because what neighborhood you come from. These are grievous things in the eyes of God. It is functional heresy and apostasy to receive it for ourselves and then deny it to others. Our actions deny the message that we claim to believe. We have to be so on guard against this because you go back again to the division that's been caused at the table historically. It's so easy for us, and we, we do this a lot, man. 21st century, we do this so much. It, it is so easy to look on the sins of the past and say, well, I wouldn't have been like them. Friend, you don't know what the heck you would have been. The pressures that you would have faced. And, and we, we do this weird thing right now. Like We almost have this version of like grace self-righteousness that's been developed, I think, especially in the last five years. It's like, man, if, if only the rest of this church was as loving as I am and as tolerant as I am and as accepting as I am and as gracious as I am and as informed as I am and as educated as I am, then, then all this would change. Friend, if, if everybody else was like you and me, we'd all be going to hell. The, the goal isn't getting people to be like us. The goal is getting people to be like Jesus. And, and this is only going to lead us to greater condemnation the more we elevate ourselves above others because we think they're more, that we're more truthful than them or that we think we're more gracious than them. All of this, if everyone could just be like me, it's more and more evidence against us that we're not striving to be like Christ. We have to be on guard against these attitudes. We have to be on guard against the, the prejudice that might build up in our hearts the ways that we might implicitly or explicitly foster division within the body of Christ, all of this has been crushed at the table. And if we try to rebuild it, we invite the Lord's discipline into our lives. This is a very dangerous game to play. So we ask the question, like, how do we not do that? Because some of us are like, I ain't taking communion today. Like, I ain't trying to get sick and die on Super Bowl Sunday, right? Like, it's, like some of us are like, I forget this. 
So, so how do we not partake in an unworthy manner? Well, Paul gives us this instruction. He says, examine yourself. Discern. And, and listen, I, I know it can seem just kind of monotonous and, and get to the end of our services and we're thinking about going home and our plans for the day. But, but church, this is why most weeks, man, we're going to take six, seven, eight minutes at the end of the sermon and we're going to reflect and we're going to ponder and we're going to ask the Lord to do his, his sanctifying surgery in our lives. You know, sometimes because of our sin, like we're, we're, we're not willing to even be honest about our own condition. And so we need the light of the Holy Spirit to shine into the darkness of our lives. There's sins in our lives that, man, because of our own sin, we can't even fully see them. We need brothers and sisters to speak into our blind spots. We need the Holy Spirit to, to illuminate our hearts and our minds and our lives so that we can see the sin that we don't even know that's there so that we can confess it and, and be cleansed and purified in his sight. This is what we've got to be doing every single week is, is discerning and examining. If we come to this table... If we come to this table after a moment of confession and repentance, and yet we know deep down inside that nothing's changing come Monday, you are playing a very dangerous game. If your understanding of grace is, I can kind of live my life how I want during the week and then just come wipe the slate clean on Sunday, you have completely missed the boat on the gospel. Completely missed it. Paul says this is to partake in an unworthy manner. It's, it's to, to make yourself guilty concerning the body and bloody, uh, blood of, of the Lord. We're in really dangerous places when we become comfortable with the very sin that drove nails through the hands and feet of Jesus. We're in a bad place when we are okay with the sin that, that jammed a crown of thorns on his head, that put 39 lashes on his back. We're in a terrible place when we can accept the gospel for ourselves and be comfortable denying it to others. But here's the good news for us today. Here is the good news for us today. The message of the gospel is not clean yourself up, make yourself worthy, and come to Jesus. The message of the gospel is he has made you worthy so that you can come to him. That's the gospel announcement, not clean yourself up and then if you do a good enough job, you come onto the table. No, we come to Jesus to be cleansed of sin because we can't do it ourselves. Like, like church, that's the reality. None of us are worthy of this. Not one of us is deserving of the broken body of Jesus. Not one of us was deserving of his shed blood. Not one of us was deserving of having him go to that cross. It is purely because he is grace and love and mercy and kindness. And he in eternity past saw you in your sin and wickedness and broke us and depravity. In the miracle of miracles, he still looked at you and said, I want him. I want her. How could this message ever become dull? How could this ever get boring unless we're not truly converted? That this is the greatest miracle that has ever happened in the history of this universe. God died for sinners, and that's what we get to remember at the table. So yeah, man, we come to the table like there's going to be some sober reflection, right? And it, and it can be uncomfortable to have to go into the depths of our sin, go into those minds and, and discover what's there. It's, it's not easy, and it's not comfortable. But listen, we don't come to the table for a funeral. We're coming for a resurrection. We don't just come to soberly reflect on our sins. We come to victoriously remember our Savior. I love what Russell Moore said about the Lord's Supper. He said, the supper is a victory lap. That's what we're doing when we close every single Sunday. 
It's the gospel victory lap. The supper is a victory lap announcing the triumph of Christ over the powers of sin and death and Satan. None of us are worthy of this. None of us is deserving of this. None of us have done anything to make ourselves qualified recipients, but we don't come to the table to hang our heads in defeat over sin. We come to victoriously triumph in the finished work of Christ. And so as as we we close this morning, three questions I want to ask you before we pray here in just a moment. Is there division in your heart, in your life, that's affecting the body that needs to be broken down today? Like, have you implicitly or explicitly exalted yourself over others? Are there others that you're looking down on? Have you, have you somehow thought yourself more deserving of the gospel than the person sitting next to you? It, it's, it's a grievous thing in the eyes of God to come to this table having harbored and fostered division within the body. Is, is there a brother or sister in Christ the Lord's laying on your heart even today? that you just kind of chosen you're going to tolerate their existence for a while. Maybe there's some tension at some point in time, so I'm just going to walk away. Man, that's not promoting unity in the body. The table, we're going to stand up and come together. The ground at the foot of the cross is level. Such good news. Doesn't matter your age, doesn't matter your ethnicity, doesn't matter your socioeconomic status, doesn't matter how much money you have, the color of your skin, the ground at the foot of the cross is level, and we all get to come together. And none of us has any right to exalt ourselves over any other. We're all sinners in need of a Savior. The second question is this. Has the good news of the gospel just just grown dull to you? Maybe today what you need to do is just ask the Lord to stir your heart, to stir your affections once again, to restore to you the joy of your salvation so that you can come to this table today in celebration, wowed once again by the miracle that he doesn't just love you, he actually likes you. You're his son, you're his daughter. His heart is drawn to you. He ran to you in your worst moment. And you need to remember that message so that you can rediscover your joy. And third this morning, for, for all of us, it's just, we, man, we need to evaluate our hearts. We've got to be honest about our sin. We've got to be honest in, in, in recognizing the nature of our sin and, and what it did to Jesus. We come to this table and we are reminded what it cost God to save us could not have given us more than he gave us when he gave us Jesus. And yet he still gave us everything. He held nothing back. So we hold nothing back from him. And through prayer and confession and repentance, we leave this place resolved to not make peace with the sin that put Jesus on the cross. But by the power of his Holy Spirit to put it to death and to walk in holiness and righteousness before him. So you just bow your heads with me this morning. As we prepare to come to the table, I just want to encourage you to spend a couple of moments with that. Are there ways that you have implicitly or explicitly promoted division within the body? Is there some pride? Is there some prejudice that's in your heart that, man, that needs to be crushed by the work of the cross today? Has the message of the gospel grown dull? And just, just tell the Lord this. You come to the Lord seeking reconciliation with him and with others, he'll, he'll honor that, he'll answer that. You come to him asking you to, to recaptivate your imagination once again with the good news, he'll honor that. He loves that request, he'll answer that. And for all of us, let's evaluate our hearts. 
Let's ask the Holy Spirit to shine the light of his holiness into the darkest recesses of our hearts and to reveal what we cannot see for ourselves because of our sin. And then this is what we're gonna do in boldness. We're going to confess the sin that the Lord already knows about because he's the one that's showing it to us. And we're gonna do it with the confidence of 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, he's faithful, he is just, and he will forgive you of your sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. And then in just a moment, if you're in Christ, I'm gonna invite you to boldly come to this table. Not fearfully, not with trembling, confident that the fullness of your sin, the full price of your sin has been paid by Jesus Christ and that you can come before God, not of any merit of your own, but only for what Christ has done for you. And that's what we're gonna do in just a moment. Just, you take just a moment here. Let's, let's enter in a moment of just confession, of repentance, of remembering what Jesus has done for us. So Father, we come to remember. We remember what it cost you to save us. We remember that we are not our own. We were bought with a price and we are called to glorify you with our bodies and our lives. So Father, we come to you this morning desiring to lay our lives down before you as a living sacrifice because you gave Jesus to be the sacrifice for us. So Lord, consume us. Send your fire on our lives. Don't let the good news ever become boring to us. Don't ever let it just become news. It's so good. So we come to this table, Lord, to remember and we come to proclaim. Lord, embolden us by the power of your Holy Spirit to proclaim your death until that day that we see you face to face. So as we come to this table this morning, as we remember, as we proclaim, I pray that you would be glorified through our confession, our repentance, our turning to you once again. Be glorified by the praise that we lift, by the songs that we sing. Let it all be a sweet fragrance and aroma to you in this place. Stir our hearts for you as we remember and as we proclaim. We ask all these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And everyone said, amen. Amen.